The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome to another edition of the Out of the Question podcast. My name is Andrea Schwartz, and I am joined by my co-host, Pastor Charles Roberts. Hello, Charles. Hello, Andrea. I believe we have a very interesting and timely question to delve into today, and I will let you pose the question and then introduce our very special guest. Yes, thank you. Um, The question that we want to ask today and then get behind that question is a very timely one in the sense that uh, it seems that we're never far from politics. And I think most of our listeners, at least the time that we're recording this on October 12th, are aware of the recent uh, Supreme Court nominee hearings and all this business, and we're rapidly approaching the midterm election. So the question that we want to ask is, shouldn't pastors not preach politics from the pulpit? Or another way, should they just stay away from the subject of politics in preaching and in the pulpit? And I am very, very pleased to introduce our guest to talk about this subject. He's a personal friend of mine, and Andreas, perhaps even more importantly, he's been a personal friend of the Chalcedon Foundation and its founder, the late Dr. R.J. Rushduni, for many, many years. He is Pastor Joe Moorcraft of the Heritage Presbyterian Church of Cumming, Georgia. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, sir. Good to talk to you all. So you heard the uh, the question as we posed it, and let me also let people know that you have actually written a book on the subject. But uh, get us started, Joe. Um, should pastors just stay away from the subject of politics in the pulpit? Well, this is one of my favorite subjects to talk about because it's one of the most important subjects to talk about and have a right view on in our day. And uh, let me answer it with four parts. First of all, saying that I trust that everything that I'm going to say is based on or consistent with the universal lordship of Christ and the comprehensive authority of the Bible. So in answer to your question, I would say four things. One, if preachers do not preach on political issues today, they're being unfaithful to their calling to the ministry. Number two, if when preachers preach on political subjects, they preach from any other perspective than the perspective of the whole Bible, they're being unfaithful to their divine calling. Third, uh, if preachers do not regularly pray on Sunday in their morning prayer for civil officials and civil government, and political personages, they're being unfaithful to their calling as ministers. And fourth, particularly in our day, if ministers do not on Sunday pray imprecatory psalms against those in political power who are particularly aggressive in their anti-Christian assault upon the church, the family, God's moral order, human life, they're being unfaithful to their divine calling. Let me just ask you this. Doesn't that produce division? Aren't you going to end up with people in your congregation who might not think the same way you do? 
And now instead of focusing on the important stuff, you're going to get people off of the main thing. Well, that's another very good question. I don't think anybody in my own particular church would disagree with anything I said, but let me answer the question more specifically. This is one of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. You can't get any more basic than to say that Jesus is Lord. And then you refer to him like Revelation 1.5 does as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Or in Revelation 19 that says that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That message on the lordship of Christ and the comprehensive abiding authority of the whole Bible will bring division in a church, uh, and a church I mean in a whole culture, and a church in a culture and churches that uh, have been unfaithful to the word of God for generations. Yes, it will bring some division, but it will also bring unity and vigor and renewed commitment and motivation to those Christians who really do believe that uh, Jesus is Lord of all and the Bible is the infallible word of God. And as we carry on our work of Christian reconstruction, the spearhead of the whole attempt to rebuild America based upon the word of God is evangelism. That is winning the hearts and minds of Americans to Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then, secondly, to Christianize Christians. And in some ways, that's harder than the first. <laughs> and uh, so that not only evangelism, but Christian education of young people and of adults based upon the Word of God, and we're talking from meaning from the pulpit as well as other areas, is absolutely fundamental. It always has been throughout history. You know, uh, Rushton, he wrote a great book called Foundations of Social Order in which he shows the political, cultural, social implications of the great early church councils and that uh, the West, in, the, in its best part, was founded upon the, the uh, orthodox statements of those councils and their practical implications. I remember he referred to the Council of Chalcedon as the foundation of Western liberty. One time, years and years ago, I got a letter from a man in the USSR, in uh, Georgia, USSR. And uh, like Charles said, I wrote a little book on politics called With Liberty and Justice for All, Christian Politics Made Simple. And this man said, I have gotten a hold of your book. And I never knew there was a relationship between liberty and Christianity, and I hope you don't mind, but I use it as the basis of my lectures in the University of Tbilisi, Georgia, USSR. That's amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. I often wonder what happened to him. Yeah. And uh, so I think that beginning in the late middle uh, 1900s, in the late middle 20th century, you had a great revival, the fastest growing, most influential revival in the past 60 years in the Christian approach to, uh, to politics, beginning with the emergence of Rushdeny. 
And I think that beginning there, since the 1960s, on up into the 20th century, that there's been a massive reunification of Christians, as well as division, as there'll always be. You know, First Corinthians says that that uh, divisions must come so that those who are faithful will prove themselves to be so. And one of the ways that I see have seen the powerful influence of Reformed Christianity uh, over the past 60 years on American politics is that over the past several election cycles, three or four viable presidential candidates were asked, what author has influenced you the most? And they all said Rush Dooney and Francis Schaeffer. My secretary, a former secretary, told me the other day, she said, uh, Pastor Moorcraft, there's something you've forgotten. You realize that years ago there was a man that called you and asked you to teach him everything you could about the biblical approach to politics, education, economics, and the like. And you spent a great amount of time with him. And I said to my secretary, I said, no, I don't remember it at all. Who was it? And she said, Michael Pence. So we have in, the, in churches that should believe what we believe and should appro approach culture the way we approach them. And since I'm a Presbyterian, I can particularly throw stones at Presbyterian churches who are culturally irrelevant, uh, too hostile to the Christian faith, to being sympathizers with anti-Christian views without knowing it, thinking that people like you all and the people who we stand with are insignificant in this culture when under the radar for 60 years, we've been starting dozens and dozens of we, not meaning me, but the people who share the, our view, dozens and dozens of churches, small little organizations, publishing houses, training candidates for public office, influencing people to some degree or another in the biblical approach to culture, so that I am optimistic in the long run concerning America's future. And also, I would say, that if somebody's going to really get involved in politics, and I ran for the U.S. Congress in 1986, and praise the Lord, lost, <laughs> but uh, that if somebody's going to get serious as a Christian involved in politics, if a preacher is going to preach on political issues, he it is a must that he read and master Rush Dooney's Institutes of Biblical Law. I've read and reread mine so many times, it's rebound in Naugahyde. <laughs> Institutes of Biblical Law, Law and Liberty, the nature of the American system, this independent republic, and politics and guilt and pity of guilt and pity are must readings for anybody that's going as a Christian going to speak effectively into our culture about these major political life and death issues. Joe, let me ask you a question that may seem odd in light of our discussion. But I think it's one that uh, some Christians at least uh, properly struggle with, and that is this. 
should Christians vote, or are there cases where Christians should not cast votes in elections? That is another very important question. I think that uh, the biggest reason for the success of the left and of the anti-Christians, both in the Republican and Democrat Party, is that Christians, over through most of my lifetime, when they go into a voting booth, leave the Bible on the floor on the outside of the voting booth. Even many of those people who believe the Bible applies to every area of life fall down when it comes to using biblical principles for determining how you're going to vote. And so when the average Christian goes into the voting booth, let's say conservative Christian, the average conservative Christian, when he goes to the voting booth, usually votes out of fear and not faith. He says, well, if I don't vote for this candidate, that means that this other candidate is going to get elected. And whenever you make decisions based upon fear, you're going to make mistakes. And they'll say, well, uh, we've got to vote for the lesser of the two evil. And, of course, the question is, who said that? I'll tell you where that phrase began where it originated. The old Weimar Republic, which was created as a result of the end of World War I and the defeat of Germany. Weimar Republic, the great industrialists and German capitalists hated it because they couldn't be as entrepreneurial as they wanted since most of their wealth had to go to the allies who defeated them. So in the 30s, now these were capitalists and industrialists, not communists nor socialists. And so in the early 30s, a young politician comes to these powerful, wealthy capitalists and says, I hate the Weimar Republic too. And I will help you dismantle the Weimar Republic if you put me in office, even though you disagree with me on some things. I'll help you unravel the Weimar Republic. And these great German capitalists said, well, this man's the lesser of the two evils. And so they voted for Adolf Hitler. People usually think the lesser of the two evils is the Republican conservative. I think that in some ways, Republican conservative candidates are greater evil than the Democrats who are great evil because they run under the mask of conservatism and discredit conservatism as they put their liberal policies into effect. So here's how I vote. I have certain standards I draw from the word of God that I will not compromise on. And one is if a candidate believes in abortion in any case, even if he says, I'm personally against abortion, I'm sorry we have abortion, but I believe in abortion for rape and incest. If a candidate believes in abortion, whatever else he believes, I mean, he can be a constitutionalist, he can be a conservative, but if he is for murdering unborn children, I'm not going to vote for him. And if in a, say, a presidential election, there is no candidate 
that is consistently pro-life and that is not, to some measure, consistently constitutionalist and Christian, I either will not vote or write in somebody's name. For instance, there was an election once where the choice was between a Marxist and a Mormon. I don't vote for Mormons or Marxists. So I wrote in Howard Phillips. I voted for Howard Phillips 10 or so times. And the last time I voted for Howard Phillips, I called him on the phone and said, Howard, I, I've been voting for you for so long. I hope and pray you win this time. Joe, just let me interrupt you. And for any of our listeners, Howard Phillips was for many years the presidential candidate for the U.S. Taxpayers Party, later the Constitution Party, and also a very close friend of R.J. Rushton. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, one time, uh, whenever I would talk to Howard Phillips, he would always refer to Rushton, he quote, as his teacher. So, Joe, you're impressing upon me the fact that to be an effective minister of God's word, you not only need to know the word, but you need to know the history of your country and the history of the world. Because too many preachers nowadays, especially in your mega churches, who knows what sort of training they've had in making the word of God applicable to every area of life and thought. And instead, what they do is they try to be so seeker-friendly that you can invite people to come to church who are, you know, wallowing in sin, but they'll like coming to your church because you won't ever call them out on it. That is exactly correct. And, uh, you know, when David was raising an army in the Old Testament, he uh, went particularly to the sons of Issachar because there were people who understood their times and they knew what to tell Israel to do. They knew what to tell Israel to do because they knew the Bible, the law of God, the law of Moses. And they understood their time. They were in touch with their culture. They knew what was going on around them. They knew how things came to be the way they are. I, I think, like you said, that is absolutely essential. If we, if we, one of the things that made Rushton so effective was he knew how to speak the word of God effectively into the 20th century culture in America because he knew America's history. And the liberals, the anti-Christians, have appreciated history more than we Christians have over the years. And that's why they've tried to rewrite it and to revise it because they understand that to get anywhere, they have to have history on their side. So they make the bad guys look good and the good guys look bad. And as a result, Christians, because of their ignorance, don't have any uh, way to refute them or stand against them. And so I think that not, not just preachers, but Christians must be students of history, not promiscuously reading every history book that comes along. I read a statement on Facebook the other day from the from a person that should know better who said that Christians have got to develop the practice of reading promiscuously. Well, I think Christians must develop the practice of reading uh, discerningly. I love what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said, discernment is not distinguishing right from wrong. Discernment is distinguishing right from 
almost right. A lot of people have a pietistic notion that they're going to be holier than Jesus and they're going to improve on the Bible and how to deal with people. And so what they can't differentiate truly is between what God says is right and wrong and what the greater culture says is right and wrong. And if I can, That is exactly correct. If I can follow up on that, I, I just wanted to say, too, going back to the earlier part of our discussion, and as a fellow pastor who preaches regularly, one of the challenges that I face uh, is helping Christians understand that, number one, you can't avoid preaching politics, just like you can't avoid religion in a general sense. But in terms of Holy Scripture, especially the New Testament and books like the Book of Acts and the Four Gospels, you know, if you could hit, you know, you see those game shows where they have to slap this sort of red button and a bell goes off when they get the right answer, whatever. You know, if you had to hit a red button and make the bell go off every time you read something in the book of Acts or the four Gospels that were related to politics, you'd be constantly hitting that bell. And I think that that pietistic influence that you referred to, Andrew, whether it be dispensational or reformed pietism, people have not yeah. understood that. When well, a statement like you mentioned, Joe, Jesus is Lord of the kings of the earth, or Jesus is Lord, or there's no other name under heaven given among men. These are profoundly political statements in their context. And the people of the time right. understood it. The people of the time understood it, and that's why they opposed the apostles. Yeah. Uh, the Christians knew that they were declaring war on Rome when they said there's no other name under heaven given among men, whereby you must be saved. Then the name Lord Jesus, Curios, that's the very name Caesar called himself, and the ultimate ruler of everything. And the Christians, when the Christians said Jesus is the ultimate ruler of everything, they knew they were putting their life on the line and declaring war on Rome. Rome's gone, and the Christian church still marches on. Uh, I have people often tell me, they say, well, why doesn't the Bible speak to politics? And it's amazing how presuppositions can blind you so that when they ask me tell me that i say well now let's go back and think exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy are laws that israel the old testament republic was to obey and enforce through its jurisprudence its political powers uh, and then you have first second samuel first second kings first second chronicles all of which focus on political powers and their impact upon culture, good and bad. Then you have the book of Proverbs, which is a king teaching his son how to be a good king. And then you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc., where you have these prophets addressing kings and cultures, not only kings of Israel, but kings of other nations of the world, like Babylonia and Ethiopia and the like. And then you have Jesus directly speaking to politics when he refers to that fox Herod. And then when he's on trial before Pontius Pilate, after having been examined by the church leaders concerning his theology, Pontius Pilate, old politician that he was, wasn't care, didn't care about theology. The only thing that Pontius Pilate wanted to know whether Jesus was a threat to him or not politically. And so he says, Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus says, and I quote, it is as you say, or to put it in Southern, 
Pilate, you better be scared to death of me because you would have no political authority at all if my father hadn't given it to you. And then Jesus made that great statement that Pietas likes to use and misuse and abuse. Jesus said, uh, which is the scariest thing of all to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, he wasn't making a statement about the, if you know Greek, he wasn't making a statement about the nature of his kingdom, saying, well, my kingdom doesn't have anything to do with the world, so you don't have anything to worry about with me. I'm not even concerned about politics. He'd already said he was king, as Pilate said. And the, the, the prepositions, etc., in that statement, he's not describing the nature of his kingdom, but the origin of his kingdom. He's saying, my kingdom, which has entered into history with me, of which I am the king, my kingdom did not, did not originate from this world. It originated from another place. It originated from heaven. And therefore, the weapons that we use are not the pathetic weapons of swords and spears and nuclear bombs, but our weapons are truth, which, are more, which is more powerful than any weapon that man can ever bring against us. So, yeah, Pilate, you better be scared to death of me. And then in Paul and the epistles, you have Paul's, uh, like you say, the book of Acts, too. And then you have Paul in Romans 13 spelling out the basic principles of, of what a, a, a Christian republic looks like. You have Peter in 1 Peter 3. Uh, and then you have the great book of Revelation, which focuses, and people ask me, what's my favorite, what's the best commentary on the book of Revelation? I say, well, it hadn't been written. It's Bonson's tapes. The book of Revelation talks about how the resurrected Christ will destroy apostate Judaism, which he did in uh, uh, 70 AD, and how he's going to destroy anti-Christian Rome, which he did. And any apostate religion or any tyrannical government that treats his church the way apostate Judaism and Rome treated the church in the first century will suffer the same fate. So I would say there's more than a little on politics in the Bible. Well, you just gave a whole, I don't know, four-year course in, in getting people to see <laughs> that if they decide that, you know, polite conversation doesn't include religion or politics, then they'll never be talking about anything. That is true. I like something that uh, was fact, attributed to Dr. Rush Dooney. He said, and I, I, this is in an article that I recently uh, wrote for Arise and Build, you know, a lot of people raise the issue of, oh, you want a theocracy. Well, Rush said, we're in a theocracy already. The question is, uh, whose side are you on? Are you an outlaw or an in-law of the king? That is right. A theocracy simply means God rule. And so every uh, political institution is theocracy. It's just a difference of gods. Joe, when you mentioned that it's very hard to get over people's presuppositions, I think that's why, and my experience is like yours, Sometimes it's much harder to get people who call themselves Bible-believing Christians to understand this perspective than those who have never given much attention to the Bible or God, because it's very hard true. to get them to see that, no, this is what 
being ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you is all about. Yes, ma'am. In fact, just the other day, I was talking to somebody, Bible-believing Christian, and who was saying things. He didn't believe there was any victory in history for the church. He said, America's just too bad. It's, it's never going to be saved. And I said, who said? Who said? Uh, where did you get that in the Bible? Is the Bible going to be uh, your final authority, or is it not? That is the issue. The issue is not how strong evil is in our culture. In fact, I believe when people tell me, how, how do you expect to change America in the light of how evil it is? I say, well, I believe that sovereign grace is more powerful than total depravity and sin. The Bible says that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so though we may have short-term setbacks as God's judgment upon the evil of our nation, nevertheless, in his wrath, he remembers mercy. And in the long run, I expect the kings of the earth to bow down before him and gush into the church and ask the church to teach them how to rule their countries. And they'll lay down their arms and beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Joe, let me ask you a question about uh, something that you participated in quite a few years ago now. And it was the first time that I ever laid eyes on you or heard your voice. I had heard and read about R.J. Rushdoony before I saw this, but uh, 1987, something like that. You participated in a series that was put out by PBS, and Bill Moyers was the host called God and Politics. And yeah. um, you, you, along with Dr. Rushdoony, were one of the featured people who were interviewed for that. And looking back over the years since that program uh, was released, how would you assess things from a political standpoint? Have things gotten better, worse, in between? How would you reflect on that? Well, let me encourage Christians to, to see that. It's on YouTube. It's not hard to find. It showed, it's an hour program that showed two or three times on PBS. And according to PBS, 35 million people saw it. I think the, the reason they wanted it is originally is because they thought we were a bunch of obscurantists and ignoramuses. But Bill Moyers was so taken with Rush Dooney. Not that he agreed with Rush Dooney, but Rush Dooney turned out to be something completely different than Moyers expected. And Rush was his usual self. I mean, he was great. Take no prisoners, no compromise. For instance, uh, Bill Moyers asked him, Dr. Rush Dooney, why the Bible? Of all the ancient religious books, why the Bible? And he said, quote, because it is the word of God, unquote. <laughs> there was nothing more to be said about that. So at the end of the program, Bill Moyers gave a summary statement that you would have thought Rush Dooney wrote for him to say, which he didn't. But here's what Bill Moyers said at the end. Quote, the reason the Christian Reconstructionists don't like democracy and the reason we do is for the same reason, he said, because democracy is the enemy of absolutes. I mean, you'd have thought Russia wrote that. Very <laughs> simple. I have an interesting tidbit that I think might, our listeners might appreciate on that. I was told that when they decided to do this series, 
they had never heard of R.J. Rush Jr. They didn't know who he was. It, it wasn't a name that was familiar. So they sent the producers out to go to the big religious names in the area. And they interviewed these people, many of whom I don't think ever made it onto the show. But while they were there, they were looking at the bookshelves of these various people and everybody apparently had an Institutes of Biblical Law or other books by Rush Dooney. And the producers came back and said, we've got to find this Rush Dooney person because everybody's reading. Yeah, that's great. That's good. That is, I wouldn't be surprised if that wasn't true. And, and to go one step further, just to um, show how much the dedicated minority, as Rush Dooney liked to say, has influenced most recently, the printing rights for the Institutes of Biblical Law were returned to Calcedon Ross House Books. Rush always had the copyright, but because he had made an agreement that so long as they kept the book in print, that they would have the printing rights. Anyway, when I was talking to the person who now runs Presbyterian Reform Publishing, or PNR, I said, mm -hmm. how many copies of Institutes do you think you actually ever printed? And he said, 25,000. Oh, man. That's it. And, and Yeah, well, they're gonna, it's going to keep selling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the point I'm saying is, is that that's not a lot for when it was originally published, but the influence it has had has been profound. There used to be a, uh, I keep it in my files, the old magazine, U.S., uh, uh, World News and World Report, uh, something like Time Magazine or Newsweek Magazine. Back in the 80s, late 80s, there was a front page, the, the, the cover of U.S. News and World Report, which was a, you know, liberal magazine. I had 10 forces reshaping America, and one of those was Rush Duty and Calcedon. Yeah. Uh, of course, they, they didn't like him, but <laughs> his influence far exceeds his numbers. For instance, one time, five or six, seven, eight years ago, there was a big seminar in Cincinnati, Ohio, called the Sufficiency of Scripture Conference. The theme and all the speakers talked about how that the Bible is divinely authoritative on everything about which it speaks, and it speaks about everything. And so it wasn't just on the inerrancy of Scripture. It was on the sufficiency and the comprehensive authority of Scripture to every area of life. There were over 2,000 people at this conference. Most of them new Christians, members of new little churches, not many mainstream churches represented, but of these 2,000-plus people, most of them were devoted readers of R.J. Rushdie. And so people have asked me in recent years, whatever happened to the Christian Reconstruction movement, uh, expecting me to give a negative answer. And I said, well, we don't have any Rush Doonies. We don't have any Bonsons. But we do have their books. and We do have their tapes. And also the books and tapes of other people and not just them. But we have countless thousands of people under the radar that are seeking to put the principles of the Lordship of Christ and the authority of Scripture to effect in their lives and businesses and schools and churches all over the country. And so I am enthusiastic about those churches, programs, things like this, 
not just in the country, but in the world. I'm in contact with young guys in uh, England, Ireland, Brazil. We have a, a young man in Brazil named Frank Brito, who is a powerful preacher. He's just 30 years old, but he's influential all over Brazil. He's translating my 5,000-page commentary on the larger catechism into Portuguese. And somebody else has already published my book on politics in the Portuguese in Brazil. So all over the world, not just the English-speaking world, you have these great old principles of the faith, not just of a particular group, but of, of, of the faith for centuries. You have them starting to show themselves all over the world. That should be a real encouragement to people who think they're all alone, they're all isolated, and, and instead of being concerned about who sits on the Supreme Court or who lives in the White House, they should put their attention on the, the groundwork building from the bottom up so that they can say 30, 40 years from now, look at the influence I've had by helping people understand what God requires of us. And not despise the day of small beginnings. There is a new book out by, by a French Calvinist named Cordial called The New Day of Small Beginnings. And it's basically a history of the covenant and the kingdom of God. He had a great appreciation for the Christian Reconstruction Movement, Rush Duty, etc. And this book is well worth reading. Uh, he said this, actually. He said, in the history of the church, 2,000-year history of the church, we have firmly established certain fundamental truths. We have firmly established the truth of the Trinity. We firmly established the truth of the deity of Christ. And it's up to Christians, he said, in the 21st century, which he fully expected to happen, to establish a strong biblical theonomic ethic, and that was his word. There are good things happening all over the place. We've just got to be sons of Issachar and know what's really going on in our day, what the bad guys are doing, why they're doing what they're doing. It just didn't happen overnight. What was the, what's the, one of the most important things for our modern culture is what was the difference between the American War of Independence and the French Revolution and when did the French Revolution come to America, and what's been its effect ever since? Which goes back uh, th to those... an emphasis that Calcine has on make sure your children are getting a solid, accurate education, and it's why they don't belong in the state schools. Oh, I believe it's sinful to send your children to public schools. In our church, sending your children to public schools is a disciplinary offense. And, of course, people don't realize that Rush Jenny was the father of the modern Christian school and homeschool movement. My, just, my concern for homeschools and Christian schools is that's not the ultimate savior, just putting yourself in a, uh, your children in a homeschool or Christian school, because I've learned in homeschools and Christian schools, a lot of the books they use are the same books they use in public schools. And I tell people that uh, what it takes a public school student six hours to learn, it takes a homeschool student three hours to learn. So if you want your children to be as smart as public school children, teach them only three hours a day.
<laughs> I think that homeschool should be, uh, there should be more required reading, uh, discriminating in the, in the choice of books they read, so that we're not only able to keep up thinking-wise with public school children, which is not hard, but we outthink our enemies, and we're able to show the bankruptcy of, of their worldview. So we're coming to the end of our time. I just want to make a comment. Having known Dr. Rushduni in his later years, and I think it's fair to say, Joe, you're not a spring chicken. You are up there in years. There's a piece. 74. Okay, 74. So there's a piece that I perceive in those who have been in the battle for a while. And most people would think, well, you must be discouraged. Uh, it doesn't sound like it from what you're saying. But I think one of the things that happens is that as you get older, you get perspective. And I think it's so important for young people to connect up with people who have been in this fight for a while. So can people hear you preach if, they're, if they hear you right now and they say, oh, wow, I wish my preacher preached this way. Can they listen to how you preach or where you preach? Can they find your sermons anywhere? Well, I have about 2,500 sermons and lectures on sermonaudio.com. We also live stream my sermons every Sunday, uh, Heritage Presbyterian Church, Hanover, Cumming, Georgia. We uh, are reprinting several of the books that I wrote. My, my uh, five-volume commentary on the Larger Catechism is expanded to seven volumes, and it's being reprinted in its second edition. Go to sermonaudio.com. They, they can find sermons or lectures by me on just about anything. Okay. Charles, do you have any closing thoughts? Well, just uh, I'd like to say a word of appreciation to Pastor Moorcraft. He, as you have alluded to, um, Andrea, Joe, you've fought the fight. You've kept the faith uh, far more consistently, consistently than some others. And uh, just very deeply appreciative of your stand for God's Word and the kingship of Christ and your ministry. It's been a, a personal encouragement to me and my ministry uh, from the very beginning. And we are just very, very pleased that you've had time to talk with us today. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for the privilege. And uh, this won't necessarily be the last time we want to talk to you. So keep, keep your <laughs> oh, appointment. Anytime. Now, Andrea, uh, Joe mentioned about five books by Rush Dooney at the beginning. Can we link those? I th I'm sure we can uh, on the oh, podcast. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Like he said, you can find his books. We, Calcine doesn't carry them, but you can find them are either on Amazon or just doing a Google search, and I'm sure they'll pop up. And you can also find, uh, I have all kinds of other books and commentaries on the Bible and books on history that that uh, we just published in a local church that I pastored. And uh, if you called Chalcedon Presbyterian Church, that's where I used to pastor, uh, they have a whole room full of books and study guides and commentaries and everything that I've written and that we published there through the years. Sounds like a very productive homeschool curriculum for those who... Uh, want to take your admonition, just don't get to the end result of public school quicker than the public school students do. Raise yeah. up people who will make a difference in the culture. And yeah. Yes, ma'am. In fact, I, one, one quick thing. I, a lot of homeschools use my uh, for their history curriculum 55 sermons that I gave on the history 
of the Reformation from the first century up through the 18th. And there's about 55 lectures there, Augustine, Calvin, Luther, etc., that anybody 12 years old and above can understand. And they're on sermonaudio.com. And they're, of course, whenever you uh, listen to anything on sermonaudio.com, it's free. So this is not a commercial. But like in all things, and we certainly hope that listeners of our podcast and those who come to calcine.edu that have the benefit of Rush Dooney's books and lectures for free, that you will give to help support the work, recognizing that you found out about this because people had been supporting ministries like Joe's and like Calcedon. And I think the expression is you can pay it forward. Also, I tell people that it, it takes a lot of money to conquer the world for Jesus. <laughs> yeah. That is not, that is not an inexpensive enterprise. No. And so I encourage Christians like Rushdoony used to to use wisdom and discretion when you give your tithe and when you give your money to the work of the Lord. Don't just give it to anybody. Okay, Charles. Well, um, thanks for the suggestion on having Pastor Moorcraft with us. Um, it's a double pleasure. He has lots of wisdom, and he has been a friend over the years. And um, so... It's been a pleasure for me, and I hope our listeners have benefited as well. Well, thank you very much, Joe, again. And uh, to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And we will look forward to hearing from you and speaking to you at our next podcast. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit KingdomDrivenFamily.com. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.